probably one of the most famous episodes of The Twilight Zone is the episode titled Eye of the Beholder. And if you've seen your share of The Twilight Zone, you've probably seen this episode. Maybe you watched it last week on New Year's when the Sci-Fi Channel ran its usual marathon of The Twilight Zone. They actually showed every single episode this year, a very first for them. I don't have cable, so I didn't get to join in on the marathon on sci-fi, but that's okay because I own all of the episodes on DVD because my parents know me well and they bought them for me, so thank you mom and dad. I can have my own marathon of the Twilight Zone anytime I want. And my kids know this because the other night during their Christmas break from school, two of my kids drew me pictures and requested a Twilight Zone night. My kids know me well. There's a picture of their uh, drawings that are very good. My kids know me well, and you know my answer to this request, right? I was like, of course we will have a Twilight Zone night. Now, I'll admit, I may have got a few tears in my eyes when I saw these little drawings here in their request. And then, as if that wasn't enough, one of the elders texted me and said, hey, did you know there's a... Twilight Zone Marathon on sci-fi? We have the greatest elders here at Grace. (laughs) Not only are they godly men, but they look out for their pastor as well. Well, in the episode titled, Eye of the Beholder, there's a woman who is bandaged up all over her head, and you can't see her face, but you can see her talking, and she's in the hospital, and she's surrounded by all of these doctors and nurses, and they tell her that there's nothing we can do for you anymore. We, we've tried everything, and this last surgery is our last attempt to fix your face, to fix your appearance, the way you look. In fact, she tells them, this is the 11th surgery that I've had. And they tell her, if this 11th surgery doesn't work out, then you're just going to have to accept the hideous way that you look. In fact, we'll end up shipping you off to some other camp where some of the other freaks are kept who look like you. So they've done all the surgeries they can. Nothing is going to change her appearance. And during the whole episode, you never see the faces of the doctors or the nurses either. They're either off camera or they're in the shadows. And at the end of the episode, in classic Rod Serling fashion, they remove the woman's bandages, and what you see is a very beautiful woman. It's Donna Douglas, who went on to play Ellie Mae Clampett on the Beverly Hillbillies, if you like classic TV. So a very beautiful woman is revealed underneath all of these bandages. And the doctors and the nurses are repulsed as they see her hideous face. They can't believe how awful she looks. And the woman begins to scream as she realizes that nothing changed. The surgery did not work and she still looks hideous. And then you finally see the doctors and nurses. And they are these hideous looking pig-faced creatures. It's endings like that that make me love Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. That episode is a picture of how grace is. 
The reality, if we take a a parallel from that episode to our relationship with God, the reality is that we're more like the doctors and the nurses than we want to admit. That, That when we see Jesus, when we see God, when the bandages are taken off, if you will, in the incarnation, sometimes Jesus is not beautiful to us. Sometimes we don't believe that Jesus is better, which is exactly why we were singing before the sermon, make my heart believe that Jesus is better. Sometimes we're not captivated by his glory. Now, clearly, the woman, Donna Douglas, in the episode was beautiful, and from our perspective, the pig-faced doctors and nurses are hideous. And in our lives, in our relationship with God, Jesus is the beautiful one, and we are the pig-faced creatures, if you will. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and yet when we see him, we're not always drawn to him. Instead, we find beauty in other things. We chase after other things. We chase after other pig-faced idols, and we think that those things are better. Those things are more beautiful And we think those things will bring us more pleasure. We actually believe that the pig-faced idols that we worship will really satisfy us. And yet, even though we are like those hideous pig-faced people, finding beauty and delight in other pig-faced creatures and idols, the good news of the gospel is that God is not repulsed by us. He is not grossed out by us. He is not shocked by us. When Jesus comes near to us, even though we are sinners and we reek of sin, Jesus does not almost throw up in his mouth. Grace pursues even the most hideous people. That's exactly how grace works. God's grace doesn't play by our rules. Grace doesn't live by our definition of beauty. Grace likes to run free. Grace loves to pursue the ugly. Grace loves to pursue the down and out. Grace loves to pursue the scorned, the hideous, the grotesque. I love how Preston Sprinkle describes grace He says, grace is more than just leniency and unconditional acceptance. Divine grace is God's relentless and loving pursuit of his enemies who are unthankful, unworthy, and unlovable. Grace is not just God's ability to save sinners, but God's stubborn delight in his enemies. Yes, even the creepy ones. Grace means that despite our filth, Despite the sewage running through our veins, despite our odd addiction to food, drink, sex, porn, pride, self, money, comfort, and success, God desires to transform us into real ingredients of divine happiness. Grace is God's aggressive pursuit of and stubborn delight in freakishly foul people. And since we all stood Or stand guilty in God's courtroom? Homeschooling moms, porn stars, Awana champions, and suicide bombers, we all urgently need the same stuff that rearranged Jeffrey Dahmer's soul. 
We all need grace. We all need grace. If you're a homeschooling mom, you need grace. If you're a porn star, you need grace. If you're an Awana champion, you need grace. If you're a suicide bomber, you need grace. We all urgently need the same stuff. No matter who you are or what you've done, the good news of the gospel that we all need to hear today is this. Grace has no leash. Grace doesn't have a leash. It it has no limits. When grace encounters a sinner, whether porn star or a wanna champion or homeschooling mom or suicide bomber, grace doesn't yank on the chain in order to rein grace in because grace can't be reined in. God doesn't pull back on his grace and say, not so fast. Don't go there. I, I don't associate with or affiliate with those kinds of people. Grace runs wild. Grace has no leash. And that's what we'll see in this section today. We'll see how God's grace could not and would not be chained up. And that's good news for freakishly foul people like us. And yes, that's even good news for the creepy ones among us. Now let me show you where I get the idea that grace has no leash. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 5 and hear the word of the gracious God that we serve. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Well, here's what the preacher of Hebrews is saying. He's saying that angels don't get the inheritance. Angels will not have the future world subjected to them. Angels will not have dominion over the new heavens and the new earth. We will. Believers will. Those who are redeemed by Jesus because of his life, death, and resurrection, we will get the inheritance that Jesus secured for us. Resurrected, glorified, new bodies, living together with one another and God on the new earth. That is our inheritance because of what Jesus has done for us. So the preacher of Hebrews already told us this. At the end of chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, and To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels are ministering spirits that are sent out by the triune God to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, to serve believers. Angels serve us. They serve the Lord, they do what he tells them to do, and he tells them to serve and minister on our behalf because we're in in union with Christ, his son. But I want to point something out here because I'm not sure that you're as shocked as you should be right now. You might not even be shocked at all, but verse 5 should shock you. Verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2 should shock you the way that you're shocked when you finally get to the end of that Twilight Zone episode, Eye of the Beholder, and you see those pig-faced creatures. It should be shocking to you that angels serve us. It should be shocking that they don't get the inheritance that is to come. It should be shocking that the new heavens and new earth are not subjected to angels. 
it should be shocking that they don't have dominion over creation. Now, why? Why should it shock you? It should shock you because angels have never sinned. At least most haven't. Some did in eternity past when they rebelled against the Lord along with Satan. But aside from those who did rebel in eternity past, angels have not sinned. They have not rebelled against God. Angels always worship God, always obey God. They always do what God commands them to do. See, I think when we read about angels in Isaiah and Revelation... We think that they are freaky. We've looked at this earlier in the book of Hebrews. Listen again to this description and tell me that if you saw these angelic beings, these creatures with your own eyes, tell me that if they came into this room right now and saw them, tell me you would not think that they were a little bit freaky. Listen to their description. Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Then you fast forward to Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. Second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Six wings these creatures have. With two of them, they cover their feet. With two of them, they cover their face. And with two of them, they fly all around God's throne. And there are these living creatures who look like a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle. And they have six wings with eyes all over their bodies and on the inside and the outside of their wings. Tell me that if you saw these creatures with your own eyes, that you would not look around to see if Rod Serling was going to pop out and say, you're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the twilight zone. We think angels with bodies and wings that are full of eyes are freaky. We think these angelic beings are freaky and that they would fit right in on an episode of the twilight zone. But the truth of the matter is that we're the freaky ones. We're the freaky ones. Because we rebel against God. We sin. And that's freaky to angels. So when you contrast sinful humanity with angels, who are these glorious and majestic and obedient, albeit weird-looking servants of God, who always obey and always do what God commands, and you contrast them with sinful humanity, those who have been redeemed, those who are in union with Christ, and yet who still sin every day, multiple times every day, when you compare those two, who do you think should get the inheritance? It should be angels. It's shocking that they do not have dominion over creation because they have never sinned. It's shocking that believers will inherit the new heavens and new earth because we sin all the time. But that's not how grace works. Grace seeks out sinners. Grace pursues God's enemies. Those who are ungrateful, unworthy, unlovable, undeserving, unqualified, and unwanted. 
Grace goes to the rebels, the misfits, the scoundrels, the ragamuffins, the ugly, the grotesque. And grace also goes to those who don't seem that bad, but are in fact just as bad as the others. Grace also goes and finds the goody two-shoes, the Pharisees, the churchgoers. Everyone is a candidate for grace. I love what Jack Miller, an old Presbyterian pastor, said. Cheer up! You're a lot worse off than you think you are. But in Jesus, you are far more loved than you ever could have imagined. Some of you are shocked because you don't think you're that bad. And some of you are shocked because you know how bad you are. See, it doesn't phase Jesus at all. He's not shocked by your sin He's not shocked by your self-righteousness. Grace deals with both. And that's why it's so scandalous. To be sure, grace is shocking. And grace is scandalous. But it's what makes the gospel good news. So when you read Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5, understand that grace is seeping out of that verse If you pause long enough and you linger over the verse, Hebrews 2, 5 is shocking, but it's also proof that grace has no leash. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews quotes David in the next three verses. The preacher of Hebrews will quote Psalm 8 because he's shocked by this grace. He's flabbergasted. He's amazed that grace flows downhill to freakishly foul people, the freakishly foul people of Psalm 8. So look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So the preacher of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8 in these verses, but he shows his own humanity because he can't remember the chapter and verse references that he's quoting. So he just says, Somewhere it says, I know it's in the scriptures somewhere, I just can't remember. I love how honest he is. He can't even remember the chapter and the verse numbers or even the book. His memory is slipping. He must have had six kids too. Well, we got to give him a break because there were no chapter and verse divisions back then. But he does remember the actual words of the verses. And in them, he highlights that mankind is the pinnacle of creation. And he's quoting David here from Psalm 8. And when David stared up the night sky that hovered over Israel as he was writing Psalm 8, David couldn't get his mind wrapped around the fact that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, cared for him, a lowly human being, a mere speck in the universe. And David didn't have access to the Hubble telescope, but that didn't stop him. He could see enough of the splendor and majesty that Yahweh had splashed across the heavens to be awestruck that the Lord would even consider weak, frail humanity. David was shocked by God's scandalous grace when he stared at creation. 
So when David says this, what is man that you are mindful of him, he's not asking God a question. He's really not posing a question at all. David is actually making a declaration. David is saying something like this. You are an infinitely glorious God. You made what scientists will later call the Milky Way. You made thousands and thousands of stars. You made these tiny little shiny dots that I see in the night sky. And if I lived long enough, I would learn that they would be called planets. You made this whole galaxy, and yet you want to know us and work through us? Fallen, broken humanity? You want to be with creepy people like us who have sewage running through our veins? You want to be with us, sinners, who have odd addictions to porn and pride and self and money and comfort and success? How is that? Why is that, God? David is flabbergasted. Grace has totally flabbergasted David in Psalm 8. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews quotes him right here. The infinitely majestic and holy God of the universe cares about humanity. Weak, frail, broken, rebellious, sinful humanity. And David can't believe it. But David knows that this was God's plan all along. Mankind was the pinnacle of God's creation. And we were created to be God's vice regents who helped him rule. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews is quoting David here. Because he wants to set up just how glorious Jesus is when we get to him in verse 9. He wants to set us up for how wonderful and glorious the gospel message really is. So the preacher of Hebrews is shocked that God would be so gracious to humanity after Adam sinned. Why does God still care about humanity? Why does he love us? Why is he so gracious to us? Because that's how God is. Yes, we are the pinnacle of creation. God made many, many wonderful creatures in Genesis 1, but human beings are the pinnacle, the apex of creation. That's what it means that we were made a little lower than the angels and were crowned with glory and honor. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. And that's because we are made in the image of God. We were created to be God's vice regents, to rule and have dominion over the earth. That was God's plan. And that's the point here. Human beings were created by God to rule and have dominion over all creatures, great and small. But when you read Genesis chapter 1, and when you read Psalm 8, and when you read Hebrews 2, you know that something must have happened because even though humanity was given dominion and everything was put under our feet, we don't see that fully right now. Something must have gone wrong because we don't see all of creation in subjection to us right now. And that's exactly what Hebrews 2.8 says. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to mankind. When God made Adam, all of creation was subjected to him. He had dominion over everything. But something happened. Adam sinned. And because Adam rebelled, humanity no longer has dominion over creation the way that Adam had dominion over creation before his rebellion. The devastating news that seeps out of the cracks of Genesis 3 is that we no longer have dominion anymore. Oh, to be sure, in and out has dominion over cows. 
And they have dominion over potatoes right now. But not all of creation is subjected like it was at the beginning for Adam. Chick-fil-A has dominion over chickens and tea plants because they make a mean sweet tea. But not all of creation is subjected like it was at the beginning for Adam. And Starbucks has dominion over coffee cherries and the cows that supply their milk. But not all of creation is subjected like it was at the beginning for Adam. So in order to understand what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here, you have to understand that when Adam sinned, everything changed. Yes, we still have dominion in one sense. We have things put under our feet, but we don't see that fully. We don't see that completely. We don't see creation subjected to humanity like it was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And that explains why lions don't obey us but instead they want to eat us for dinner. And that's why mosquitoes bite. And that's why we get sick. And that's why we die. We don't see that kind of dominion anymore. All because Adam and Eve sinned. That was a game changer. In Adam, we all rebelled. We inherited his DNA, and now sewage runs through our veins. Robert Murray Machane was well aware of his sinfulness and the sewage that was running through his veins when he said this, and it's true of all of us. I am tempted to think that there are some sins for which I have no natural taste, such as strong drink, profane language, so that I need not fear temptation to such sins. This is a lie, a proud, presumptuous lie. The seeds of all sins are in my heart, and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. That's true of all of us. The seeds of every sin are in your heart and mine. And we're foolish if we think they aren't. We are all very much capable of the most heinous and gruesome sins that have ever been committed. There's sewage in our veins. And that's because we are born in Adam and his remnants remain even after we are united to Jesus. And that's why we don't see the world in subjection to us right now, because of Adam. But even though we are sinners, we still have worth and dignity because we are made in God's image. We still have value because we are made in God's image, even though we're sinful, even though we're sinners. We still have value and worth and dignity. We'll look at that next week because it's Sanctity of Life Sunday. But even though you died in Adam, even though you sinned when he sinned, and that's the bad news, by the way, even though that is true, there is still good news. Grace has no leash. Adam messed things up, and that's why we don't see creation the way it was supposed to be. But the good news of the gospel is that we will one day. We don't see things restored right now, but what we do see is Jesus. We see Jesus, the eternal Son of God, being made a human being, a little lower than the angels, suffering and dying for our sin to fix what Adam broke. We see Jesus tasting death for sinners to make them right with God. 
what we do see now, even though we don't see creation in subjection to us like the way it used to be, what we do see with the eyes of faith is Jesus. We see him who came down from heaven, who took on human flesh like us. We see Jesus who was just like us, only he was without sin. And in him we see grace. And we see grace in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we don't see creation subjected like it was. What we see today are the consequences of sin. But more than that, we see Jesus. Don't miss those six words there, but we see him, namely Jesus. Don't miss those six words, but we see him, namely Jesus, because you may need them someday. Don't skim over those six words. Slow down and think about how beautiful those six words are, but we see him, namely Jesus. What sweet, comforting words. But we see him, namely Jesus. What sweet, comforting words when you've blown it. But we see him, namely Jesus. What sweet, comforting words when it feels like the consequences of your sin will have the final word. But we see him, namely Jesus. What sweet, comforting words when you found delight in 10,000 things more than Jesus. But we see him, namely Jesus. What sweet, comforting words when you blow it, when you yell at your kids after you've read them a nice little Bible devotion and tell them that you love them and God loves them and he's like, get in the bed right now. What sweet, comforting words. Maybe you parents don't ever do that. What sweet, comforting words. I kept coming back to these six words this week. As the devil was reminding me of my sins, I just kept saying, but I see him, namely Jesus. But I see him, namely Jesus. What sweet, comforting words when you, like Adam, have to live with the consequences of your sin. But we see him, namely Jesus. And the Jesus that you see will not look away from you when you feel like you're drowning in the hideousness of your sin. When the bandages come off and your heart is exposed, he won't shudder. He won't cringe. Jesus loves you. The Jesus that you see loves you so much that he tasted death for you. He faced the music of God's wrath for you on the cross for your sin. All because of grace, verse 9 tells us. All because grace has no leash. And grace had no leash for Jesus. God's grace, God's love for sinners did not pull Jesus back at the gates of death. Grace took Jesus by the hand and walked him smack dab into into the middle of of God's wrath for your sin and mine. Grace has no leash. It went all the way to death. 
it led Jesus all the way to death. The most hideous thing that could happen to Jesus where he bore the curse of the law for our sins. It took him all the way to the cross where God the Father turned from him and poured his wrath out upon his own beloved son. It led him all the way to death for you and for me. He tasted death for us. I don't know what death tastes like, but Jesus does. We see Jesus precisely because grace has no leash. And because grace has no leash, that means that it doesn't just end with us. Grace intends on reaching all nations, all races, all tribes, and all peoples. So there are people in your life who need to hear this good news. People at work, in your family, in your neighborhood. So what I want you to do this week is to pray And say, God, would you give me opportunities? Would you open doors to have a conversation? Maybe begin building relationships so that I can share this wonderful grace that has come into my life. See, we don't want this message to stay in these walls. We exist as a church to ignite a passion in every single person in this city on the central coast, to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. We don't want to just do that here. Yes, on Sunday morning, we want together and we want every sermon to be about Jesus. We want to rehearse the gospel. We want to be set free and liberated, but we don't want it to end there. We want to leave these walls, leave this building, and then go tell people it doesn't matter how bad you are. Jesus came exactly for people like you. So pray this week that grace can run wild in the lives of the people that God has placed around you. Pray that others one day, all the way to the ends of the earth, to the nations, pray that others one day would be able to say, but we see him, namely Jesus. Quote Robert Murray Machane once again. He said this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ in all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world, or Satan, or the flesh. And when you see Jesus, you will be reminded again and again and again that grace has no leash. And the reason why is because it found you. Because grace came to you. Because it pursued you. Grace tasted death for you. Jesus tasted death for you. Grace seeks out sinners. Grace pursues God's enemies. Those who are ungrateful, 
unworthy, unlovable, undeserving, unqualified, and unwanted. Grace goes to the rebels and the misfits and the scoundrels and the ragamuffins and the porn stars and the suicide bombers and the homeschool moms and the goody two-shoes and the Awana champions and the Pharisees and the churchgoers. Grace is more than just leniency and unconditional acceptance. Grace is God's relentless and loving pursuit of his enemies. His enemies who are unthankful, unworthy, and unlovable. Grace is not just God's ability to save sinners, but God's stubborn delight in his enemies. Yes, even the creepy ones. Grace means that despite our filth, Despite the sewage running through our veins, despite our odd addiction to food, drink, sex, porn, pride, self, money, comfort, and success, God desires to transform us into real ingredients of divine happiness. Grace is God's aggressive pursuit of and stubborn delight in freakishly foul people. Grace is shocking. And grace is scandalous, but it is what makes the gospel good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace that you pursue your enemies not to destroy them, but to transform them and to delight in them. Father, my prayer for us today is from Psalm 43, where the psalmist cries out, send out your light in truth, Lord. Let them lead me to your holy hill, to your dwelling, and then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Father, would you send out your light this morning? Because many of us are stuck in the dark. Would you send out your truth this morning, Father, because many of us are believing lies. And would you let your light and truth lead us to your holy hill, to your dwelling, to the altar of God, to the cross. Would you let your light and truth lead us to you so that for your glory we would say that you are our exceeding joy. May we look to your son this morning and see Jesus and say, he is my exceeding joy. In his name we pray, amen.